and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 11, the Eiffel Grand Prix. The battle for victory at the Nürburgring was delicately poised, with Friday practice cancelled and cold temperatures plunging teams and drivers into the unknown on Sunday. But Valtteri Bottas's engine failure after starting from pole spoiled the strategic battle and left Hamilton to cruise to a relatively comfortable victory ahead of Max Verstappen. Completing the podium was Daniel Ricciardo for Renault's first top three finish since its F1 return. But should the Australian really be thanking a late safety car for saving him from an overly ambitious strategy? To analyse F1's return to the Nürburgring, I'm joined by the BBC's Jenny Gao. Jenny, how are you doing? Hello. (laughs) I'm really good, thank you very much. I mean, certainly a lot warmer, I suspect, post this race. I feel like all anyone could do is talk about the cold this weekend. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a peculiar weekend. It felt like we were back at testing in Barcelona or (laughs) even at Silverstone sometimes. And we all knew as soon as Nürburgring was announced as um, the venue for round 11, it was like, ooh, (laughs) Germany in, in like... October. (laughs) And then, of course, it actually happened. So, yeah, the fog, the rain, the cold, you name it, it it hit, didn't it? And uh, I suppose that's what you get if you try and do a race in in that time of year in that sort of place. Look, in a sport that probably needs more unpredictability, maybe we need to transition slowly towards some kind of winter championship because at least it threw us a bit of a curveball. The cancellation of practice, I think, certainly helped. And it's a debate that F1 sort of throws up from time to time. And in fact, we'll get another version of it in Imola later in the year. But F1 without practice does tend to work out. Yeah, I'm all for that. I mean, I know television are like, no, we must have cars going around in circles for three hours on a Friday and we must have fans at the track on a Friday as well. And I get that. And I get that, especially for the promoters, you know, making money out of Formula One is really, really tough. But let's think of another way of doing it. Let's, you know, let's chuck them all in carts on a Friday and give them a cart race or something. Non-championship, just fun, but something that the fans can buy into. And then, you know, let's not have so much practice. Let's not give the strategists all the information in the world. And let's just like throw a couple of curveballs in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that, like I said, does crop up from time to time. And it did strike, someone told me once, and it sort of strikes me every time this happens, that this is probably the only sport where essentially training is part of the television spectacle. Like I can't really think of another one where, another one that isn't motorsport anyway, where that, happens and I, I don't know if I don't know if people need to see drivers practice yeah it does seem a bit strange doesn't it let's watch their practice session it's like filming the warm-up for a friendly <laughs> yeah exactly it's just like why would why would you do that you wouldn't so yeah I'm I'm in agreement with you I, I think look, keep that bit behind closed doors um or just don't do it, mm-hmm. uh, preferably <laughs> or, actually someone suggested you could flip the weekend and maybe give them the Monday post-race to do the testing that they would normally do on a Friday. And I thought, yeah, that's great. That is a great idea. Do that. Because, I mean, you know, okay, Friday's no... Well, I mean, people are taking work off Friday to turn up to the track anyway. So just take off Monday and you can watch inconsequential practice. That is actually a great idea. Someone should be writing that in. I think it's good. And that way you could open up the schools, you can engage them in loads of STEM projects, you can get them to come in, you can, you know, the teams aren't going to be as guarded because the race has already happened. So I think it's a great way of of appealing to uh, the youth market and appealing to 
schools to say, you know, Mondays is now test day. Come on down to Formula One. That's look. I think that's a great idea. One of the better ideas in a, in an era in which Formula One keeps trying to change in the middle of some regulatory discussions. That should be the top of the order. I well, not my. I, I have to say, it's not my idea. Somebody <laughs> else came up with it, but I'll steal it then and well run with it, Michael. It can look. be a joint um, <laughs> Australia versus. UK collaboration. If no one claims in the next twenty four hours, we'll take it. We'll put it. We'll make that. Give them twenty four minutes. Don't <laughs> don't give them that long. Twenty four minutes. <laughs> I think that. I mean, that certainly was one of the curveballs. The lack of practice, as you said, the lack of time for teams to decide on the strategies they wanted to use, decide on or, or discover rather how the tyres are interacting with the circuit, especially considering the cold, as we've touched on. But there was this extra element, and of course it's not sustainable to make this a permanent part of the sport, but the fact that the Nürburgring was just about a new circuit. We've certainly got some actually new circuits coming up, but not having raced here for seven years, uh, and when they did, the regulations were completely different. A lot of the drivers currently in the sport weren't here as well. That also changed things. It really put a premium on that one hour of practice we had. And I guess as if to emphasize that, we also had the inclusion of Nico Hulkenberg in this weekend, didn't we? Who who's literally first lap was in qualifying to learn how the circuit was working. This was probably one of the more testing weekends, I suppose, a lot of drivers and teams have had in recent times. Yeah, I think Kimi Raikkonen's probably the only person old enough and he's done enough Grand Prix <laughs> to actually remember maybe all of the Nürburgring races. No, I joke, of course. But yeah, I think um, there were so many different factors and um, you know, even... Things like tyre choice, that was kind of plucked out of nowhere because they didn't have the data. So they just went, well, let's just go with the medium ones because that'll work probably fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think um, not having been there in, in the modern era, I, I definitely think the wildcard option going forward is something that F1 must consider. Mm. Um, not, you know, it's, it's nice to have a practice on a, on a Monday, but for me, the first thing I do would be to to make sure that there are potentially two wild cards um, in a calendar every year that they don't have loads of information for. The drivers don't know how to actually drive them. So they're going off and hiring a track for a test day in their road car. I love that. <laughs> I absolutely adore it. So for me, and, and it would give some of the smaller circuits the chance to sort of work with other circuits and, and get that race fee. Um, that is so difficult to to attain, and and we could go to some you know crazy places and introduce F one to more people, new people, new areas. Um, so for me, a, a, at least one, maybe two wild cards every year um, would be fantastic. It really would bring something, I suppose, to all aspects of the sport, the spectacle, and as you said, they're bringing it to to places that wouldn't ordinarily be able to either afford it or or maybe not have the facilities to want to run it every year. I think definitely better option than just uh, the sort of demo runs you occasionally get in city centres and things like that. It's a great idea, and hopefully that's something that, that does come about in Formula One in, in, in the future. Certainly if it means we can go to tracks like this that have sort of fallen off over the years. I thought what was interesting going into qualifying in particular, given it was one of the few sessions we actually got, was that Red Bull Racing looked really quite close. And how much of this is the fact that we didn't have so much time to perfect setups and things like that when Mercedes might ordinarily maximise their car? And how much of it is these upgrades they've brought more recently? I guess it's something we'll find out over the, the next couple of races. But for a little bit, it looked like we might have Max Verstappen on pole. Didn't quite work out, but seemed like he was relatively close in the race, I suppose. 
Do you feel like this is a, a genuine step forward? We'll talk about how this strategically ended up being a bit of a, a stalemate between him and Hamilton, but do you think this is a genuine step forward or more a function of the fact that this was a bit of a weird weekend like that? So I think there are three contributing factors to Red Bull. The first one, as you say, is the lack of practice, the, the lack of Mercedes being able to you know, go over this data with the amount of people they have, the experience and obviously the excellence that they are able to utilise at the drop of a hat. Um, the second thing is the the circuit. It's circuit specific to a point. I mean, this is not a power hungry circuit. So it plays into the hands of that Honda engine a little bit more. Uh, so they were able to get a little bit more from it, I think. And it closed the gap. I mean, for Ferrari to be up mm. and starting in P4 shows that you didn't need a massive big engine in your car to be able to make it work for you. But the aero upgrade, I think, is really interesting. And I've tried to do more and more digging about this. It's difficult. I'm not in the garages. I'm not able to see the cars firsthand. Um, and Red Bull are always quite guarded. Um, but they have got, uh, they call it a few aero upgrades. I think it's relatively significant. They've tried to make the car more stable. They've tried to make it more comfortable for Alex Albon. But by doing that, I think they're just looking at the unpredictability of the car and the way that the drivers say sometimes it's great and other times you just can't sort of rein it in. Um, so, you know, I, I think... As, as the week goes on, we'll be able to see exactly what the upgrades have been. But they are significant um, for drivability. And that at the moment is key for that car. It wouldn't be so much riding on how good the Red Bull package is, whether it's this circuit or generally, had Valtteri Bottas been able to, to take the fight to Lewis Hamilton here. He'd done a good job up to a certain point, of course, taking pole, got his elbows out at the first lap, which I think a lot of people really wanted him to see to show a little bit more fight with the the title on the line, if we can be mm-hmm. so ambitious as to say that before he lost even more points this weekend. Seems to go well at tracks that kind of have low grip. I don't know if this track's necessarily low grip circuit, but it was certainly very cold and that made it low grip uh, in in practice on race day. But it seemed like even though he was managed to stay ahead of Hamilton right up until he made that crucial lockup that led him past and really started to unravel his race, you got the sense that Hamilton was in almost like a bit of a stalking mode. And we've seen this in races before, haven't we, where then he tries to save his ties and overcome Bottas in a strategic sense. Do you feel like Bottas had enough in this race? Or was it one of those situations where you feel like he manages to find a way ahead, snatches pole, or maybe has a great launch, but then inevitably kind of fades back? It's a bit of a hypothetical, obviously, but it's hard to know whether he really did lose this race just through those errors or whether that was probably on the cards anyway? Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible <laughs> to know. And I think the fact the fact that the error led to Bottas, you know, obviously locking up, that was pure pressure. It's what Hamilton almost specialises mm-hmm. in, especially on a race weekend where he he seemed a little bit lost on the Saturday. Like at the end of qualifying, he couldn't nail where he'd lost time to Bottas. It's almost as if he couldn't understand it. Like, how is Bottas faster than me? That's, this is strange for Hamilton. It didn't compute in his head. So then he goes away and he studies. He really studies Michael. He has a book that he crouches over and he talks to his engineers late into the night a lot of the time to try and understand the minutiae. And I think people don't often see that side of him. They just see him playing with his dog or on his scooter <laughs> and think that actually he, you know, he's just blessed and doesn't have to do much work. He works hard. And I think he came into Sunday on a real mission. You know, he's already said 
he's more motivated than ever this year. You know, he's got a reason to win this year. And not winning this race to him, I don't think was an option. So he was probably a little surprised at the start and the fact that Bottas really did a great job and got his elbows out. And that would have surprised me even more to go, hang on a minute. (laughs) I thought I was going to be leading after that one. This is weird. So, you know, he just, he sat behind Bottas and he pressured him and he pressured him and, you know, he'd take a little break and then he'd be right back up there going, hello, I'm behind you. And and there aren't many drivers who can put up with that pressure without making one tiny mistake. And that's all Bottas made, really. And that was enough to let Hamilton through. So I think the psychology of Hamilton um, is fascinating. Was it an inevitability whether... Yeah, probably, regardless of what would happen. I think Hamilton was just in that mood this weekend. I feel like it is a good weekend to reflect on the fact that as as much as some people kind of are perhaps frustrated that Bottas hasn't been able to take the, the title fight to Hamilton again, you know, on a weekend that Hamilton made himself equally the, the most successful driver of all time, there's probably not, shouldn't be that much shame in coming second to that. I mean, I know they're all out there to win, of course. We want to see challenges. But you know, if we are witnessing one of perhaps the greatest of all time, you know, Bottas is doing pretty well, I guess, by comparison. But I feel like the great shame here wasn't necessarily that Bottas gave up the lead with that lockup, frustrating though I suppose it was certainly for him, but that we didn't get to see if he could make a two-stop strategy work. Now, I know most drivers ended up on a two-stop because of the safety car late in the race, but after he dropped back, because there was no immediate pressure from a, a third car, Hamilton and Verstappen kind of stalemated themselves into a one-stop because Verstappen didn't want to risk making a two-stop and Hamilton obviously didn't want to give up track position to try and force the issue. I mean, on fresh tyres at certain parts of this race, some cars were particularly quick and showed up the tyre management that was happening, particularly in the middle of the race. I suppose this is, again, another hypothetical, but do you feel like Bottas had that pace this weekend to perhaps make that two-stop work? And I suppose if it had worked, would Mercedes have had a role in deciding... And whether or not Hamilton maybe had to move aside for a faster Bottas or something like that. Can you imagine that ever really happening? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know in what world that would happen. But no, I absolutely can never see Mercedes telling Lewis Hamilton to pull aside so Bottas can overtake him, even though they'd be on differing strategies, which is against Mercedes mm. policy most of the time, because they like to run them on the same strategy, so they don't have to make those calls. And so it's seen that there's total you know, parity between their two drivers. Now, the fact, as you say, Bottas came in on lap 13 to, to change his tyres because of the lockup. And, and I don't think the one stop would have worked mm-hmm. um, for most of those drivers out there. I think actually um, it, it wasn't a viable option, regardless of the safety car. I know that changed everything and most people ended up doing the two stop, but I think getting to the end on a one stop would have been incredibly difficult for most of the drivers, including Hamilton and Verstappen. Um, could could Bottas have? I don't. It's really it's really hard to say because that's not the race we ended up with. Um, I don't I don't think it would have worked out differently. I think they would have ended up playing with the strategies enough to try and make it level for them both, and Verstappen. Was he ever really in with a shout? I felt like there was plenty more from Mercedes that they could have done if they'd have needed to. I think that's a fair call, particularly given what we've seen over previous races, that it tends to be just keeping the race in hand enough 
And maybe it looks close at the end. It lets Hamilton say something like they're under a lot of pressure from Red Bull Racing, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly how accurate, to what degree that is accurate. It would have been really interesting, though, had they been stuck on different strategies. And the reason they weren't is because of that virtual safety car on lap 16 that was too obvious a moment for Hamilton and Verstappen to not bank a cheap pit stop and gain that time over Bottas. Maybe a two-stop would have worked for Valtteri without that, but I guess... We'll never know. Worth adding here too, just as a bit of a, a footnote, I guess, is that Hamilton, after that, really only had to manage the the full safety car restart late in the race, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, to secure that victory against Verstappen. He was able to do this in part because of the DAS system, the dual-axis steering. He pulls the steering wheel in and out, and that moves the angle of the front tyres, the toe angle. That gives some crucial extra tyre temperature, which made the difference at the restart when the tyres were so cold. But a crucial missing element here that might have broken that stalemate once Bottas had retired from the race was the second Red Bull racing car. It's not the first time this season that that team has really missed the influence of a, of a backup to Max Verstappen strategically or just literally on the track. Uh, Alex Albon again had a pretty ordinary race. In fact, it feels like ever since he got that podium in Mugello, he's been on a weirdly a poor run of form. Uh, strangely enough, when people perhaps expected his confidence to be up. This is kind of a critical time, not just for Albon and his future, but presumably if Red Bull Racing wants to carry some positive form into next season, perhaps challenge for the title, surely whoever's in that second seat needs to be quick enough to play an influence in races like this. Oh, it's it's so frustrating. So um, we go to a briefing before the race um, with a couple of engineers uh, from differing teams. And they kind of give us a bit of a lowdown of what they're expecting, um, some strategy options, things like that, um, and just tell us, you know, how we can best sell the race sometimes. Um, and in one of those briefings, they said to us, oh, things, things you'll need to watch out for, um, first lap, there'll be a lot of cold tyres, heating them up is an issue. So expect a couple of people at least to lock up into turn one and ruin their race because as soon as you get a lock up you're going to have to come in you're going to have to change tires and that is going to lead to having to do a two-stop which no one wants to do so okay well let's see who locks up then (laughs) and you're watching and you're waiting and it's Albin and you're just like oh Alex no you know they are in a good car at the moment whether whether they're in a, a good enough car to realistically be able to challenge Mercedes on a normal day is another matter. But that car, you just feel so frustrated for everybody because it doesn't matter who's in it and who's driving it. No one can handle it. So it, I think it once again shines a spotlight on how good Max Verstappen is. But no, I mean, how are they going to resolve this? Are they going to have to look outside of their camp and, and break all the rules that Red Bull have put in there to to look at the likes of Nico Hülkenberg or Sergio Perez and put one of them in that car, what are they going to do? Because at the moment, they are... It sounds harsh, but it feels like they're breaking people. Mm. They broke Gasly, they broke Kvyat, they all went away from it in a bad place. Are they going to break Alex Albon? And it's not their... I'm not saying it's their fault. It's the situation that they find themselves in. And it wasn't my point. It's actually um, my colleague, Jack Nichols. But he was saying, you know, every year we get excited about Red Bull, but only around this time of year when halfway through the season, all of a sudden their car starts performing and they start challenging. They ne- And we get excited because then maybe next year, at the beginning of the season, they'll be able to challenge and they never can. 
So I, I find it very hard to get excited about Red Bull. Um, but very, very easy to get excited about um, Max Verstappen. So <laughs> I, I don't know where that leaves me. <laughs> it is a strange situation, isn't it? Because kind of like you said there, we obviously saw almost exactly the same thing happen last year with Gasly. But I guess the key difference is that there seems like there's a difference in terms of the way they're handling it. And maybe that's just because you know in the middle of last year, they were battling Ferrari for second in the standings. This year, they're pretty much on their own because Ferrari's obviously fallen quite a bit back. And yeah, Mercedes, I guess, is a foregone conclusion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, I guess that makes really critical what they decide to do next, doesn't it? Because it, in, in some senses, it speaks to what they expect to be doing next year. I mean, if Alex doesn't improve, but they continue to, to give him opportunities, re-sign him for next year, I suppose, does that mean they're kind of, they've kind of put their head down for next season or really believe that he'll he'll pick back up next year? It seems like it's a a huge risk or huge opportunity that second seat but then again I suppose like you say every year it's the same question and the start of every year they don't really perform you have to ask um like who's who's letting who down at this (laughs) point in time and I don't know the answer to it like is Red Bull letting their second driver down is the second driver letting Red Bull down and why is Red Bull not able to provide their drivers with a car that works from the get-go that is pretty much a distillation of that whole question really who is letting who down <laughs> i look forward to probably never well probably never finding no. out but getting a little bit more information over time i suppose <laughs> that's why the top two ended the way they did hamilton verstappen stopped again behind the safety car it meant that any strategy was essentially neutralized between them but the battle for the third place on the podium was where there was tension we started off with two quite different strategies that could have brought daniel ricardo and sergio perez to essentially almost a last lap duel it still happened in that way but albeit on the same tires because of that safety car but you know we talked about and you said there the idea of one stopping in this race seemed like a bit of a long shot certainly the further into the race we got but it seemed like Renault had kind of at some point decided they wanted to at least try it Ricardo stopped behind that virtual safety car on lap 16 Perez went long in the way that he seems like he's very good at doing of course we know how well how, how good he is on tires particularly soft tires didn't stop until about mid distance had a lot of ground to make up on Ricardo no one had done anything close to 44 laps on a single set of tyres. Do you think they, they, they were gambling their first podium of this season on that move? Was it a bigger gamble than perhaps it looked out of the car when Ricardo said, I reckon I probably could have taken him? Yeah, I think, I think you could well be right. I, mean, I spoke to Pirelli midway through the race and just said, could, could people get to the end as things stand? Um, and they weren't, they weren't sure. Um, so, so you have to look at what the strategists know, and a lot of the strategists were banking. It's really interesting. They were banking on someone starting the race on a hard tire. Right. Nobody started the race on a hard tire, so they were all going, "Okay, someone's gonna, someone's gonna do it." Nope. Great. No one's done it. So they didn't even have that information to utilize. I think it was only Kevin Magnuson maybe that had run the hard in um, Saturday session. And that's the only data anyone had. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they were all a bit kind of just hoping that whatever strategy they went for was going to work. And as you say, in the end, the strategy was kind of dictated to them. Um, could Ricardo have made it last? I just, I don't think so. I think it's, I mean, I think they really needed to try to get to lap 25 and they came in at 19. 
So they were six laps short. Now, maybe they could have extended the stint if you think, oh, yeah, we'll get a safety car so I can sit behind the safety car and potentially, you know, save a little bit, do a bit of management. Potentially they could have made it. But I think I just I'm not convinced that that was the plan. Necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. It's a really weird one because they didn't they didn't really pit at a time that I was expecting them to. They, they were the only car that came in on that lap. So they were in a little bit of a land of their own. It did seem a little bit like that they'd fallen into that idea because they had that buffer from stopping behind the virtual safety car uh, ahead of Perez and and Norris as it was before he had his failure. Uh, And then just thought that they could eke it out. And look, they had the advantage. It was 10 seconds when the safety car came out. So that was about 15 laps from the end. Perez at that point was gaining by a second a lap. So... It might have been close, but you do wonder whether or not there would have just been a cliff at some point. Like it would have been going all right and then all of a sudden completely off the pace. There was an opportunity for Perez to win in a different way, though, because the safety car came out. A lot of drivers took that as an opportunity to make essentially a safety second pit stop to ensure that they were going to make it to the end. Daniel Ricciardo included kind of saved them from that gamble. But for a little bit, it looked like a racing point. We're going to stay out. In fact, they did stay out for one lap and then came in afterwards. In their own view, and perhaps trying to make it to the to the end on a, a one-stop strategy, they would have inherited track position. Do you think this was an opportunity lost for them, or was the soft tyre the best way to go, given how cold they got behind the safety car for the restart? Oh, I was shouting at my TV. <laughs> I was like, don't pull him in, don't pull him in. And yeah, I'm not a strategist by any stretch of the imagination. I was just going on my gut feeling of, of what I felt was right at the time. And for me, the track position is king. And yes, okay, everybody else had come in pretty much apart from Grosjean, I think. And, and you know, okay, you could, you could take the punt and think, let's, let's, see what, let's see what can happen. And that's what I would have done, I think, because by pitting him, this, I mean, they were lucky that they got away with it and managed to pull him in mm. on the second lap. I suppose that wasn't luck, that was strategy. <laughs> they pulled him on the second lap, realising that they still had the ability to do that without losing out too much. Um, but for me, I would have, I mean, this is Sergio Perez. He is a master mm. on those tyres. And I know they would have been worried about the restart and the fact that the soft tyre would have been that much better on the restart. But actually, was it that much better on the restart? Nobody changed places. There was no no you know huge differential in the end about those cars. So could Perez have held on? He went twenty nine laps on a soft, so he could have done the rest of the race on the mediums um, without any problem. I mean, the safety car was just badly timed for them. Was it even needed? Not mm. sure. Um, so for for me, the the safety car neutralized the race, took away most of the excitement that was building and possibly wasn't actually needed at the time. <laughs> it's rare that a safety car kind of, why not say incredibly rare, but it's rare that we would be disappointed by the emergence of a safety car. Normally it's the one thing you're kind of relying on to bring it all back together and develop and deliver something. But it was yeah. a little bit controversial, I guess, at least to let the lap cars go, wasn't it? Because it really increased the amount of time the safety car was out there. Safety car that was out there for an age. <laughs> and I get they wanted to get the cars back in the right order and in a line so that we could have some sort of a juicy end to the race you know 15 lap shootout whatever it but that unfortunately 
isn't the way it happened and you would have put money on it kind of mixing things up potentially and and Hamilton was very very good at that restart he really slowed things down I thought Verstappen was going to crash into him at one point you know and he just timed it brilliantly so that he got away from Verstappen and unfortunately that meant that Verstappen couldn't put any pressure on him he was worried about defending and so there was never that kind of battle for the lead that I think people wanted so yeah the safety car was just um unfortunate and I think I think if uh you know it's easy to say in hindsight if I'd have been the team down there at racing point I would have liked to have tried I I think they they needed the points they wanted the points it had been a very rocky weekend for everybody at racing point but I would have loved to have um to have seen Perez do you know what is almost the unthinkable now because He's so good on his tyres. He could have made that work, I think. There are a couple of drivers who did stay out to varying effect, I suppose. One of them, let's talk about Romain Grosjean first, I suppose, because this was a fairly good weekend for him, I think. He even spoke positively on the radio at various points, which seems increasingly... It's a miracle. Yeah, increasingly rare for him, but that's that was nice to hear. Uh, he one-stopped this race, medium to hard, which was thought going to be pretty difficult in the in the conditions didn't stop behind the safety car of course gained three positions as a result of not stopping behind that safety car did lose two pretty quickly because he was restarting on the hard tires which of course were the the least grippy of all particularly in the cold but did gain one it meant he scored his his two points which is his first score of the year Haas's second score of the year but that was a good gamble for that team I suppose and we've seen that Haas isn't too afraid to gamble from time to time which I suppose is exactly the mindset they need considering they've slipped back so dramatically in the last couple of seasons yeah a team like Haas really have nothing to lose um you know they're not in a battle they can afford to take gambles that others can't and we've seen it from time to time through this season the strategist going okay well, let's just hoof it and see um, and, and I think it was a really good call at the time. You're like, always oh, on those hards. He's going to get gobbled up by everybody else. But, you know, he only lost a couple of places. He was one of the drivers who was able to really get some heat into his tyres by catching up after the um, safety car and being able to unlap himself for another race because he did the same um, in Mugello. So I think they had that experience from Mugello of being able to get some get some heat into the tyres on that um, kind of reformation lap to get them into the right order after the safety car uh, or during the safety car. Um, and I think, yeah, you can afford at that point to be bold. I mean, bearing in mind, he got this um, piece of gravel on his index finger and was thinking that he'd actually broken his index finger at the beginning of the race, dropped back to stone cold last because of it, and then worked his way up to finish um, in in ninth, I think it was really impressive from him and the team. And I'm pleased because they needed a, a little bit of, every team needs a little bit of good fortune, don't they? We can compare that on the other side of the coin, I suppose, to Ferrari and Charles Leclerc. And let's deal with Leclerc and Vettel once a little bit here because two, again, quite contrasting weekends. Perhaps there was one more position on the table for Leclerc because he also didn't stop behind the virtual safety uh, the safety car at the end of the race uh, and ended up losing a position to Gasly who had the, the quicker restart he was on brand new soft tyres was Gasly so there was an advantage there still scored some good points though and otherwise maximised uh, a little bit of an offset strategy as he's sort of tended to this season I suppose in a difficult car but compare that completely with Sebastian Vettel who pretty much undid his race from pretty early on it does feel like you know notwithstanding that Vettel kind of did harm to himself with the, his spin that 
there is room to at least sharpen up the strategic side of things for Ferrari. Not the first time or first season we would say this about them, but if the car is not going to be that great, at least for the next season and a bit, surely there's room to improve more immediately some of the off-track stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's head banging <laughs> against wall again because you just so many times over the last few years, Ferrari have been in a position where they could have done better and and strategy calls uh haven't haven't played out f- for them their way i mean they were unlucky if you look at the timing of it um you know they they missed out by a, f- a few laps because they just pitted that was the strategy call they wanted to make they would they locked into a two stop very early for leclerc and and you could see there was a way of that potentially working i don't think that car particularly likes those soft tires in those conditions so they needed to get him off off of those tyres. I don't think they were expecting to qualify as high up as they did. So for them, it was an opportunity, I think, that they they kind of partially squandered. Uh, and it was just really unfortunate timing. In hindsight, would they have come in under the safety car and changed tyres again? Possibly. Um, you know, it, it was just really unfortunate for them. Um, and they were in, you know, a really a good position and they still ended in a good position with Leclerc because he drives the pants <laughs> off that car. He's very talented, but um, I'm not sure how much was luck and how much was judgment. And I, I do feel for Ferrari because they just got stung by that one. Who would know that mm. a safety car was going to be thrown for an incident, which didn't even look like a safety car um, incident, um, you know, a few laps after they'd just pitted to put him onto the mediums to go to the end of the race. And as for Vettel, yeah, he threw away his own race. It was a weird sp- another weird spin for Vettel. Um, seemed to come from almost nothing on lap 11, which meant he flat-spotted. We already know from the strategists and the engineers, flat-spot your tyres, you're going to be compromised, you're going to have to change onto a two-stop. So that puts him into a two-stop position for Vettel, and it it just got ugly from then he couldn't really do anything they put him on the hards to try and go to the end of the race which you would obviously try so all of a sudden everybody's got that hard tire data that they all wanted thank goodness for battle <laughs> spinning um and you know it was it was a slow pit stop they put him onto the softs under the safety car it was just messy all round and and you kind of feel um that the end of the year can't come soon enough for Sebastian. Very charitable of him to spin then in the end and show everyone that, well, the hard tie didn't actually work that well in the end anyway. Maybe Lewis Hamilton needed just a little bit of charity from Valtteri Bottas and his engine this weekend to ensure he got that victory. But it was the 91st victory one way or the other. The total is what matters after this race. And it was a pleasure to look back on it with you, Jenny. Thank you. It's been good fun. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for letting me digress into many other things other than just strategy. (laughs) That was the BBC's Jenny Gow. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favourite podcast app, plus we're on all of your social media channels. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a B-Mobile podcast. My name's Michael Aminato, and I'll catch you next week for a preview of the Portuguese and Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix.